Welcome back to the Peace Lab Podcast. I'm Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network. Glad to be back talking to Hannah Heinzicker, the executive editor, editor-in-chief of the Mennonite Magazine and the Mennonite Inc. Hannah, I'm glad we got the podcast back on track. We talked last week. We had a little bit of a hiatus, but then you had a great conversation with the folks at Anabaptist Witness, uh, and we're back again today. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, you too. It's good to be back up and running every other week here. So what's on your radar this week? What, what peace issue or, or peace topic are, are you reading about that's, that's kind of engaged your heart and your mind and, and got you thinking? Well, I think the story that's been on certainly my heart and mind a lot that has gotten both national news coverage and also has connections to the Mennonite Church is the story of Michael or MJ Sharp, um, who was a United Nations peace worker uh, and before that had worked some with Mennonite Central Committee and Mennonite Mission Network in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's been working there for a long time, trying to do peace building with different rebel groups. But he was among a group of six people that were kidnapped um, in the Kasai region of the DRC on Sunday, March 12th. So we have certainly been following that story. There have been a lot of prayer vigils for MJ across the church. Um, but this is a clear example, I think, of the cost of following Jesus, the cost of peace building sometimes. Um, and so we're hoping that we hear some good news about MJ and the other um, five people who were kidnapped soon. So far, there's just not much information, although the UN office and the DRC government is trying to look into this and, and find some answers here. So what about you, Jason? What about in your your area? Well, that, yeah, what you just mentioned, that is something that's, I think, keeping us all glued to the to the internet to see what the next news is. I'll tell you, for me, something that struck me in the past couple of weeks, I happened to be, I had some meetings that took me to Holmes County in Wayne County, Ohio, which I love to be at. You know, it's Mennonite country. It's also Amish country. It's a you know, very idyllic in a way and very rural. But while we were there and, and meeting with different pastors and, and folks on the ground there, I heard of like three drug overdose deaths that, that people knew about just in the area in that sort of small rural community. And to me, that, that really you know, took an issue that I think I knew about intellectually. And you hear about you know, opioid abuse and whatnot, and especially in, in the Midwest and in rural communities. And that's one thing to read about the headlines. And then to start to, to see what that impact is like on the ground. And you're like, oh, this really is a problem. You know, and, and it's not necessarily something we think about, you know, peace and justice wise, especially in the States. It's more of a, almost a personal health issue. But if you think about peace you know, in the, the shalom terms, right relationship and, and things, you know, things going the way they should, uh, this is not that. You know, like dying of drug overdose and addiction—that's not—that's uh, not what the new kingdom is supposed to look like. And so I wonder about that. So, what's the church's role in in something like that in, in these these epidemics? So, and that that got me thinking too. You know, that's that's an issue that's ongoing and that we won't hear about. We won't hear about you know sort of single person drug overdoses that affect communities. You know, unless you're really in that community. But these things happen every day. And then we, we think about the kidnapping you talked about, and we think about all the headlines that we see every day, different issues with the current administration and things that go around there. It's difficult. I, I, I don't know how to sort of not chase the news and sort of say, okay, well, I want to be a peacemaker, so that's got me tied to the headlines. Um, but then that sort of takes my focus away sometimes from these issues that, are, that have been ongoing for a long time. 
it's difficult to discern that. And I don't know in, in your role as you know, with the Mennonite, how do you sort of break that up? Where do you say, you know, the, the breaking news, this is, this is what sort of defines us and, and where we have to be. And then, but then how do you look back at these issues that have been sort of long suffering and long burning that are always going to need our attention, it seems. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I heard civil rights um, legend Ruby Sale speak recently, and she talked a lot about some of these issues, including, you know, opioid addiction as just a real spiritual sickness in our country that's kind of underlaying things. And this is also a really interesting moment just for news media in general. You know, from our current administration, I think we're hearing lots of claims of fake news. Um, we're also, before the election, there was lots of concern about what social media was doing to news and how sources that maybe weren't necessarily very credible or objective were trending. And there was lots of confusion about what was true. Um, but even more than this term fake news, I sort of wonder if we need a new category of news that talks about those things that are distracting or shiny. These very big headlines that are coming out multiple times a day right now, it feels like things based on tweets that the president has sent out, um, all sorts of statements that are coming out. And I think sometimes, sometimes those stories tell us important information that we need to know, but sometimes I think they distract us from seeing um, the underlying policy conversations that have very real consequences that are going on all the time um, from hearing these stories about things like addiction and how that's shaping the contours of our country um, from stories about ongoing conflicts and global news. I think we're not hearing about or we don't have the attention span to pay attention to and seek out those stories when there's so much coming up all the time that's big and flashy. So it's gonna be really important for us, I think, to think about where we're getting our news, what sources we're trusting, and, you know, as the Mennonite, I think about that all the time. Sometimes it's stories that are a little bit more shocking or um, shareable that end up getting trending and read all the time when we have lots of important stories about what's happening in our church and the conversations heading into Orlando, and those don't just get, they just don't get picked up as much. And I really feel like those are important for people to be reading too. So how we sort and filter things. I think that's really interesting. And you know, your conversation this week is about Israel-Palestine, which is another one of those issues that's sort of ongoing, but doesn't always make it into the biggest headlines. So I wonder, you know, if you could reflect on that a little bit. No, I, I, absolutely. If, you, if you're engaged in Israel-Palestine and, and you're, you're every day on the internet looking and you're reading higher rets and, and these other things, then well, yeah, it's always on your, on your radar. If, if you have other things going on, it just sort of pops up probably two or three times a year, right? So something will happen over there and, and you'll get it again. It'll kind of get into that cycle where you get a couple of days of intense coverage on it um, and, and then it goes away. Uh, same thing, you know, sort of with the, with the new administration, you'll, you'll hear about America's relationship with Israel and there'll be some tension or some, you know, some questions about it, but then it falls back down, um, which is, it's okay for us, you know, here in the States for it to go off the radar because we don't live in the situation where we, you know, we're not going through the checks, checkpoints on the West bank and, and we're not living in, in the fear and the tension that, that defines that conflict. So uh, yeah, that is one where, where it seems like the, the distraction can really get us away from fundamental good peacemaking and, and, and taking on these conflicts. But uh, on Israel Palestine, yeah, you're right. I had a great conversation this week with Jonathan Brenneman. Um, and we'll hear about his role and, and how he's working on uh, a new resolution about Israel-Palestine that will be in Orlando and some other great work. And I, I'll tell you, just from my perspective, I'm, this is one of those times where I feel really grateful to be a part of this church. 
I, I think we, you know, collectively um, have come to a pretty unique Mennonite embrace or, or, or approach to Israel-Palestine um, that, that reflects who we are theologically, who we are historically, uh, but also doesn't, uh, doesn't sort of whitewash or ignore the facts on the ground. So uh, this interview, I think, is, is going to be enlightening for folks if they haven't sort of been keeping up with, with what's happened since Kansas City when the resolution was tabled to where we are now. A lot of folks have been doing a lot of good work on it, and I think we're at a, a pretty unique place. And no matter what the headlines are saying, we are, are, are doing great work on this issue, and it's an important work, uh, and I'm glad that we're a church that can, can do this in unique ways, and we, can, we have people like Jonathan, among other folks, who are really dedicated to, uh, to seeing shalom happen in Israel-Palestine. Absolutely. So for anyone who's heading to Orlando to be a delegate this summer and to vote on this resolution, this conversation should be a good primer for what's, what's to come and what they might see there. Absolutely. I, and I would say listen to it twice, not just because it looks good on our clicks, because it'll be, a, <laughs> cause it'll be very informative. And it's good to be talking with my friend Jonathan Brenneman. Jonathan, I just saw you a couple weeks ago in D.C. Yeah. Now it's good to see you here, the miracle of Zoom video audio conferencing, but good to see you. And this podcast episode, this episode of the Peace Lab podcast, we were, we were talking about Israel-Palestine, and you are in a pretty unique position within the church uh, to tell us more about Mennonites and Israel-Palestine and where we are and what kind of work we're doing on that. You have a, a position with Mennonite Voluntary Service that's pretty new and pretty cutting edge. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so um, in the summer of 2015, a resolution was passed. Well, first, a resolution was tabled to for the Mennonite Church to take action on Israel-Palestine. And uh, basically, people said, we don't, uh, we don't know enough. We're not sure about this resolution. Can you give us two years to, like, study and learn? And so a resolution was passed uh, that was unanimously passed that Mennonite churches wanted more educational opportunities um, on Israel-Palestine so that they would be ready to take steps forward to support our peacemaking partners uh, who work there. So I was um, hired or volunteer hired uh, <laughs> to, um, to help implement that resolution, to help provide educational opportunities um, to Mennonites and Mennonite churches across the country. Gotcha. And you're, you're living there in Elkhart Goshen area. That's right. In the Jubilee house, the MVS house. Nice. I work out of the MCUSA office. Um, yeah. Working out of here and emails and video conference and you, and you also travel and, and do things in person. Yeah, a lot. So I actually spent the first two months just traveling uh, to kind of Mennonite hotspots around the country uh, seeing what was going on there, meeting with people who uh, had an interest in Israel-Palestine and just learning kind of where, where the Mennonite church is at. Uh, and since that time, I've done, uh, I've been a bit more rooted in Elkhart, but I still do quite a bit of traveling, some to churches to speak, some to conferences like the Telos conference I saw you at, uh, but a lot just... Um, connecting and, and meeting with, with folks that are doing the work within their communities. So what are you hearing? What's, what, what's the church saying about Israel-Palestine? 
And, I, you know, my own experience in, in my job is, you know, if you talk to one Mennonite, well, good, you talk to one Mennonite. And so, uh, especially in an issue as sort of murky and sometimes contentious as Israel-Palestine, I, you know, the, the church is on a, a spectrum, I imagine. But what, what are some of the, the larger trends that you picked up from your time talking to folks? Yeah, I mean, the, there's definitely a, a wide range of opinions uh, amongst Mennonites. But it's been really interesting because I also get to connect with people from other denominations that are working on Israel-Palestine. And something unique about the Mennonite Church is we have had a deep and generally positive uh, uh, connection to Israel-Palestine. Uh, Mennonite Church, most, most denominations went to that area um, in kind of a colonial context. So the Lutherans came in with the German kind of uh, consulate and, and they kind of tried to get their, their different territories. The, the Mennonites have never tried to plant a church in uh, Israel-Palestine, uh, but instead the first Mennonites to go there were MCCers working with Palestinian refugees. So we've always had this uh, position of service there. And uh, also, m more Mennonites, like so many Mennonites have been to Israel-Palestine and have learned about what's going on there between uh, MCC tours, CPT delegations, uh, most of the Mennonite colleges sending folks there, uh, and not just to see uh, biblical sites, but also to learn about uh, the issues and struggles of Israelis and Palestinians living there today. Um, so the Mennonite Church, I think, has more people that are engaged with Israel-Palestine than, than most other denominations, and that's been hugely helpful in um, kind of having these conversations around the country. It's, it's hard to find, uh, there definitely are, but it's hard to find a church that doesn't have someone or know someone uh, who has been to Israel-Palestine. And the Come and See Tours, I guess we have to mention that as well. This great partnership, Everance, Mennonite Church USA, Mission Network, MCC, to send uh, 100 leaders from across the church to Israel-Palestine. I benefited from that. That was the first time mm -hmm. I, I was able to go. Uh, and it, it, it blows your mind when you yeah. get there. You know, the, the Holy Land part blows your mind. And mm -hmm. then sort of the life on the ground part breaks your heart. Right. Yeah, and that's... The, the number one thing, if people want to like really understand what's going on, you have to go there and see it. Um, everything else pales in comparison, though, though we try. Um, but actually, the, the final Come and See Tour is happening right now, uh, and it's mostly Hispanic leaders uh, that were recruited for that tour. And so the Come and See fund was supposed to get 100 leaders in five years. They actually got over 100 leaders in four years. It's an incredibly successful program. Well, you mentioned the Mennonites have a, a fairly unique position in terms of Israel-Palestine compared to others, but and you have a fairly unique position in, among the Mennonite world in your relationship with, with Israel-Palestine and the conflict. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you're bringing to this position and why was this, why was this mm -hmm. chance to live in the Jubilee House and and do this uh, voluntary service, why was it so appealing to you? Yeah, so I mean, I mentioned that uh, the Mennonite Church didn't plant um, churches there. Uh, so as a result, there really aren't very many um, Mennonite Palestinians. Uh, 
the one exception to that basically is actually my family. My mother's uh, a Palestinian Christian. She was born in Bethlehem. Uh, my grandfather uh, was a pastor in Palestine. Uh, and when they moved to the States in uh, 1969, fleeing the Israeli occupation, uh, they were very much drawn to the Mennonite church for two reasons. One was because uh, when uh, for years they had been receiving uh, MCC kits, towels and uh, with all the stuff inside or, or quilts um, and had deep connections with, with Mennonites through that. And then also uh, having left a very community-based culture in Palestine, um, really missing that in the very individualistic USA, uh, connecting with a church denomination that was very much focused on community uh, was very appealing. So, uh, they joined the Mennonite church here. So I come from uh, a Mennonite Palestinian family. Um, and growing up with both a focus on peace and justice uh, from being a Mennonite, as well as uh, learning about the uh, injustice and violence that was happening there, uh, I wanted to be more deeply connected. I joined Christian peacemaker teams uh, after I was in college. I, was, I worked with them for a year. Uh, in Palestine before I was denied entry by the Israeli military, something that commonly happens to um, peace workers there, unfortunately. Uh, and so I was back in the States looking for ways to be connected and to use uh, kind of my Mennonite connections as well uh, to work for peace and justice in Israel-Palestine. So this uh, job opportunity was really perfect for me. Yeah, custom fit, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. You talked about your first couple months on the job. Maybe you were traveling, doing a lot of listening, and, and then I guess you, you took what you learned and, and tried to figure out, okay, what can we do to you know, answer some of the questions people have or, or resource them? So what does that look like now? How's it, how's it manifested? What kind of things are you helping organize or, or start out from, from your role? Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I heard from people who'd been there was that they came back and they didn't really have, uh, they weren't confident to speak about their experience. Um, and so we, we put together a, um, kind of a packet of helpful hints and tips for people when, when they return to the States that, that we're giving to, uh, tour leaders, uh, to, to give to their uh, the people who are in their tours. Uh, we also heard that they would, you know, speak to their congregation, but they weren't quite sure what to do after that. Uh, so we wanted to help create like networks for people to connect with others who had similar experiences or who had similar passions um, to, uh, to continue that work forward and to just provide them with uh, alternative events besides just them speaking, but things that they could help put on. So uh, we have done a series of webinars about Israel-Palestine uh, that would be great for educating people, but also that um, people who come back from Israel-Palestine are able to offer to their, uh, to their communities. Uh, we also have, right now I'm working on a, a big speaking tour with 
uh, it's called the Jewish and Palestinian Voices for Peace, uh, that highlights some of the organizations and some of the work that people are doing in the U.S. Uh, uh, connected to Israel-Palestine. So that includes, uh, that tour is going to highlight Jonathan Katab, who is uh, my uncle and a Palestinian uh, Palestinian Mennonite, as well as local members of Jewish Voice for Peace, which is a great uh, Jewish organization that, is, that challenges uh, anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim, and, uh, and anti-Arab biases, as well as challenging the Israeli occupation. Uh, it sounds like a, a lot of events and a lot of opportunities for people to get to know more. Um, some people aren't going to be able to get to these. I'm wondering from your perspective, just from your background, but also what you know about the conflict, what are a couple things, two or three things that, that you hope Mennonites would know about the Israel-Palestine conflict? Like, what are a couple of key markers that you think, you know, if we all had a shared understanding or a shared knowledge of these things, maybe the conflict starts to look different and, and maybe as a body, we start to act differently if we all agree and, and, and know a couple of things. Yeah, uh, I think the biggest one is this is not a distant conflict for us. Most people say, well, it's something happening over there between these two people that we don't really know very well. Um, but as, uh, and this is for MCUSA, so as Americans uh, and as Christians, we are deeply enmeshed in what's happening in Israel-Palestine. Um, the U.S. is... Uh, of all of the countries in the world, probably the one that has the most influence on Israel-Palestine. Um, U.S. foreign policy is deeply uh, connected there, and most Americans don't know uh, what's happening. So that's a very scary combination. Um, and so uh, just, for, just for Mennonites to realize that this is something that we are connected in, uh, both uh, positively in the ways that we uh, support groups like MCC or CPT or Mennonite Mission Network, uh, but also negatively in the ways that our tax dollars are spent, in the ways that our, uh, our investments are used in the occupied territory, and in the ways that our theologies have been used and misused uh, within that area. Well, talk a little more about that. What do you mean? How are our theologies misapplied and how are they helping sort of fuel the conflict or keep it going? Yeah, uh, I would say there's, there's two ways. Um, one is uh, historically Mennonites have not looked very deeply at the ways that our, that our uh, theologies contribute to antisemitism. And uh, antisemitism and the threat to... Jews around the world is something that Israel has used to justify its mistreatment of Palestinians. Um, so Israel will say it needs to be secure, it needs to have a strong military because uh, it is the only place that Jews can feel safe. So how do we make uh, the Jews within our communities feel safe as well? And how do we recognize that Mennonites uh, have not done that historically? Um, and that's especially topical now, right, with the uh, anti-Semitic attacks in, in the country. Yes. Uh, yeah, for sure. 
um, the the Trump White House and the current administration um, make this far more uh, poignant, actually. Uh, both that um, anti-Semitism uh, is being supported by the administration as well as uh, Israeli policies that are oppressive towards Palestinians. Uh, both of those things are being supported by the administration and um, yeah, and, and yeah, certainly I think that they would would not say that they are you know actively engaged in that, and, and would probably you know probably have some different views on that. But I guess we're just looking and saying that the environment that's in place now in the United States, for whatever reason, is uh, is conducive to this. We, we we see these these incidents happen more. Yep. So so our theology, uh, we haven't applied it in such a way that uh, that, can, that it can take on anti-Semitism. And what's the other side? You said there were maybe two. Yeah. The the, the other side is um, Christian Zionism, this idea that uh, Jews need to return uh, to their biblical Holy Land, uh, sorry, uh, to biblical Israel, and that the state of Israel is uh, that happening and is part of God's end time plans. Uh, and oftentimes that theology ends up saying uh, anything Israel does must be good uh, and that we can't challenge uh, Israeli policy. So um, when the Israeli government, uh, you know, arrests children or um, when, the, when the Israeli military is, uh, uh, demolishes homes uh, of people who've lived there for generations. Um, some Christian Zionists would say, well, that must be part of God's plan and basically does not uh, care for Palestinians, um, recognizing that they are also uh, beloved children of God. And so uh, how do we repent of both of those problematic theologies that minimize uh, Jews and minimize Palestinians? Uh, how, do we, how do we hold to a theology that uh, says that God loves everyone? And, th and I think a lot of us listening here might be thinking, well, that's not uh, you know, an expressly, I guess, orthodox Mennonite or Anabaptist view, but um, that's, I guess we'd almost classify that more as a evangelical, American evangelical view, but, uh, but our theology, especially in the United States, I mean, we're not, we're not yeah. set apart, you know, and so, so these influences do weave together. And so uh, right. probably sure. a bigger problem than we realize. Yeah. So, so how do we like have those conversations and, uh, think through, um, think deeply about our theology and how uh, how we've been influenced by these other forces and how we have a more consistent peace theology. And you got a lot of work to do. I think you're going to be living <laughs> in the house for, uh, for quite a while. <laughs> hey, well, you had mentioned, uh, you know, I guess the, the, the genesis of your role was in, in the aftermath of Kansas City and the resolution that mm -hmm. got tabled. So, so what's happening now? You've been doing all this education, but is it the same resolution that's going to come back to the floor in Orlando? Is it the same one that was tabled in Kansas City, or is this a different resolution? Yeah, so uh, there was a 
a writing team was put together to take the concerns that delegates had uh, and uh, rework the resolution based on those concerns. Um, and what, one, of the one of the concerns that I think they took most seriously was that the resolution uh, felt to many people that it was uh, pointing fingers, that uh, it was the American church saying what basically what Israel is doing is wrong without, uh, without us thinking about uh, the things that we have done wrong and without us uh, kind of taking a posture of humility. So the new resolution, the, the reworked resolution, which uh, should be made public in early April, uh, but an earlier version has been made public. Uh, it takes a, well, sorry, I should go back. One other thing that is important from, uh, that we took from delegates is that uh, they wanted to see, a, they didn't feel that it was a Mennonite response to what was going on. So uh, these were kind of the questions that were pushing the, the writing team. So uh, the new resolution takes uh, a restorative justice approach, which is a deeply, I think, deeply Mennonite uh, approach where it asks, uh, first of all, what are, what are the underlying needs uh, that all of the groups within this, um, in this conflict has? Uh, and how are we contributing to harms? And what can we do to, to minimize that? So uh, what we saw is that we are directly uh, contributing to harms in that uh, our government is supporting the Israeli occupation and that we have investments uh, in companies that are directly supporting the Israeli occupation, which is incredibly oppressive to Palestinians. Um, we also recognize that uh, we are complicit in uh, as I was saying earlier, in anti-Semitism, which fuels this conflict as well. Uh, so that is something else that needs to be repented of. So the resolution actually has two main sections. One, um, speaking uh, against occupation and for justice, and one, speaking against anti-Semitism uh, and for building relationships with the Jewish communities. Um, like I said, we see this as a deeply uh, Mennonite approach and, and a deeply restorative uh, approach. It sounds like it. Uh, it sounds like it's a more dynamic, just a more encompassing resolution maybe than what was in Kansas City. Uh, so what, what types of things is this, or is this resolution going to be asking the church to do? You know, the church at large and the church on the ground. Yeah. What are the expectations? Yeah, so... Uh, one is to continue to support and listen to uh, our peacemaking partners on the ground. Uh, these are Palestinians and Israelis that have been working closely with uh, many of the Mennonite agencies uh, that work there. Um, the other is uh, with occupation, as I said, was for us to review our investments to ensure that we're not investing in these companies that are supporting the occupation. And we're asking not only for the, uh, for MCUSA to do that as a whole through, through Everance, but also 
uh, we're asking congregations to do that uh, and individuals to look at their own uh, by uh, spending practices in the same way that many Mennonites uh, try to buy fair trade coffee or how 10,000 villages uh, is uh, working on fair trade, trying to make sure that our purchases are ethical uh, to, to, to hold the same standard when it comes to Israel-Palestine as well. Um, with uh, building relationships with the Jewish community, uh, with, that is also something that we're asking for uh, the Mennonites to do on official levels, as well as asking for congregations and conferences to uh, put a deeper effort into building those relationships, uh, as well as continuing work uh, on uh, Mennonite theology. Uh, how do we do theology after the Holocaust? How do we recognize the role that Mennonites played um, in the Holocaust? The fact that uh, in many Mennonite publications in the 1930s, there were more articles supporting the Nazi party than challenging the Nazi party. Are, are you serious? That is, yeah, that is true. There was a, a study done of, I think it was some Canadian uh, Mennonite uh, publications. Uh, and they just looked at like column space used up by people uh, in support of uh, Hitler and Nazism and people challenging it. And it turned out most people who were against it didn't say much and most people who were for it said a lot. So you end up with uh, this kind of uh, really problematic stuff that most Mennonites don't know about. So how do we continue to engage uh, and study that? And that's something that uh, MCUSA has already put some effort to, and we're calling them to continue to investigate this. So this resolution, this isn't just, you know, hey, let's sign off on this statement that'll then go off into the ether, but you know, at least it'll signal that we're thinking about this. This is. Yeah, this is going to have impact. Yeah, there's usually in the short. There's some concrete steps in this, and there's a lot of stuff that uh, it's not just for MCUSA uh, national to, to be thinking about. It's something uh, there are steps for conferences to take and steps for congregations to take. Um, yeah. Now, if you start to get involved in Israel Palestine, at least my experience was, if you scratch the surface, you know, pretty soon you get to well, you get to a lot of controversial things, but you get to something called BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions. Yeah. And that is a very divisive topic in the, in the whole, in the broader conversation. And I know just in some of our own Mennonite publications, we, we've had articles written about it, people pro and against, and, and we don't want to get into unpack all that, uh, what the implications are here. But I guess I would just ask, like, do you see this, this resolution? Is this resolution something that people are going to say, well, this is a pro-BDS, or this is anti-BDS, or, or do you think, have we done something that we can say, no, you know what, this is Mennonite, and if some people want to grab it and try to take it here, that's, that's on them, but we, we don't feel like we've aligned ourselves with the sort of one faction or the other. Yeah, I mean, I think the resolution is uniquely Mennonite, and it, uh, another way that it's uniquely Mennonite is that it is uh, answering the call of our partners on the ground. So uh, part, of, uh, part of the way that I was helping the writing team was uh, getting feedback from those Israeli and Palestinian peace partners of what they thought uh, of this resolution. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting because BDS is such a uh, either really big or very narrow um, thing. Uh, I've had people who uh, set are against BDS who read the resolution and they say, uh, we like what it's saying, we like what it's calling for, I'm glad that it's not like uh, part of BDS. And we've had people who are part of the BDS movement read it and they say, we love this work that you're doing. We're glad that it connects with BDS. So um, it's, it's an interesting document where it doesn't do uh, everything that the BDS movement is calling for. The BDS movement includes uh, or asks for people internationally to support uh, Palestinian nonviolent uh, direct action by uh, boycotting, divesting from, and sanctioning uh, both the occupied territory and Israel as a whole, uh, as well as um, academic boycotts and cultural boycotts of Israel. Now, uh, there were parts of that movement that um, certainly the resolution connects with, the boycotting of uh, of settlement products is something that we're asking Mennonites to look into, uh, or yeah, Mennonite congregations to look into. At the same time, we are we're, we don't think that Mennonite Church USA is uh, at a place where um, it would do a boycott of all of Israel. We don't think that we're not sure that uh, academic or cultural boycotts are something that are deeply Mennonite. Um, because Mennonites have always been very open to conversation. Uh, so that's a strategy that, while it is a, uh, a deeply nonviolent strategy, and I think Mennonites can support that, uh, it's not something that uh, connects to the Mennonite uh, consciousness, I think. So, uh, yeah, it's, the resolution in some ways is very supportive of the kind of efforts that BDS is doing, and in other ways, uh, uh, is not and actually challenges some of the assertions of BDS. Uh, with all of that said, I, I would say uh, BDS is still a nonviolent alternative to, uh, to violence. So in that way, it's something that I think uh, is part of, part of a peace witness is to uh, support those kind of efforts whether we are fully on board with them or not. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, and I think your uncle's written some things or, or had yeah. some, some uh, interviews or articles uh, here recently sort of making that same point. And that resonates strongly with a lot of folks. I, I guess uh, one of the questions I have for, uh, for folks about BDS and, and Mennonites and whatnot is, um, you know, is there a way, can you keep conversation going and, and can you be a, a conversation partner with, Israelis and Palestinians and whatnot, um, and, and at the same time still sort of t take on a, a more, I guess, aggressive BDS stance. Seems like it's a it's a tough tough road to navigate. But are, are there groups that can do that 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 you're aware of who've been able to sort of somehow hang on to both to to take in this, you know? And I guess I, I know I've heard Lisa Shirk and folks uh, talk about a two handed approach to Israel Palestine. You know, one hand saying we have to stop you know, the oppression that's going on on the ground, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to be in a relationship with, with you. So 
I, help us, Jonathan. How do you do both? <laughs> yeah, and I'm and Lisa was part of the resolution writing committee uh, and really helped us uh, and really helped the the writers um, kind of th thread that needle where we are able to um, to to take that two handed approach. Um, so some organizations that are doing the, some really interesting stuff in this way. Uh, one of our partners. Um, uh, called Holy Land Trust. Uh, they, uh, Sammy Awad uh, helped start it. M most of the tours uh, visit that organization. Um, it's a Palestinian Christian organization. And they are, they were one of the signatories, one of the 170 Palestinian civil society organization that signed on to the BDS call. Uh, they also uh, started an initiative where they meet their organization meets with settlers uh, and just has conversation with Israeli settlers. Um, these are Israelis who uh, have illegally moved on to Palestinian land. So they're able to both challenge um, Israeli policy and be part of the BDS and be fully part of the BDS movement while also connecting with uh, some of the most extreme uh, factions within Israeli society uh, and have constructive uh, conversations with them. It can be done. It can be done. Hey, well, just uh, I'd love to hear from you because I think a lot of us who are interested in Israel-Palestine stuff, we're, we're in this weird space now. We have a new administration that's sending, at best, I, I guess you could say mixed signals huh. as far as what their role in, and then traditionally, I guess, America has and correct me on this, but yeah, obviously we've been a big supporter of Israel, but also been sort of the, one of the main players in, in trying to convene peace talks and, and carrying the banner for a two-state solution. But even that now seems to be, to be up for grabs. I don't know, what, what do you see and what are you hearing from partners on the ground? What, what, what does the next six months or a year look like for people who want to continue to work for peace? Yeah, I mean, no, no one really knows. Uh, <laughs> Generally, in Israel-Palestine, you you don't really know, but especially with uh, Donald Trump and this administration, uh, it's really hard to tell what's what's going on. Um, one thing is that Israel has uh, this has been going on for some years, but is really getting worse now. That Israel is targeting um, those who are working for peace more and more. Uh, Israel has just put in a new law that anyone who uh, even supports divestment from settlements uh, will not be allowed in the country. And there are a large number of even American Jews who uh, are worried that that's going to stop them from coming. Um, Israel has gone after multiple human rights uh, workers and organizations and are, is doing that more. So there's kind of uh, this worry amongst people in uh, Israel-Palestine that uh, this is giving this very far right-wing current Israeli administration uh, a lot more freedom to, uh, to act as they want. Um, well, one other thing that I would say is that uh, I, I was meeting with the writing committee as, as they were doing the writing, and they started the process before 
uh, Trump's election and kind of took a break over December, January and came back together. Uh, and they realized that the resolution they had been working on uh, is even more timely than it had been um, before the election in that uh, it's a resolution that is challenging oppressive Israeli policy as well as challenging uh, anti-Semitism uh, and uh, Islamophobia. And before we thought it was going to be hard to kind of parse those things out and show that you can challenge Israel and challenge anti-Semitism at the same time. Well, now we have a, an administration that uh, fully supports um, oppressive Israeli policies as well as uh, turning a blind eye to the anti-Semitism that has been uh, more rampant since the election. Uh, so I think it's a, a very appropriate time for the Mennonite Church to be taking a strong stand um, to both challenge anti-Semitism and challenge oppressive Israeli policies of occupation. Yeah, I remember after Kansas City, a lot of people being very disappointed uh, that the resolution was tabled, but maybe this, this does work out in a way where, where this resolution that's going to be coming up in Orlando is going to engage us more deeply and more broadly, and, and maybe maybe ultimately this is going to be be better for the situation and the context that we're in and better for us as a church is going to draw us in more deeply to a holistic view of it. Yeah. You had mentioned the, the resolution is going to be online at some point in April and people will be able to access that through the Mennonite church USA website. And, That's right. and I imagine you really encourage people, but especially delegates uh, to, to engage deeply with the resolution. I, I don't know. Do you yeah. have any, if we have delegates listening to, uh, to the podcast, uh, what words of wisdom do you have for them as they try to engage with the, the document? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's a very long document, but uh, every, every word in that document was very intentionally thought through. Uh, and every section, I think, holds together in, in, a, very, uh, in a very strong document. So please engage it deeply. Uh, take your time reading through it. Uh, have conversations with your congregation about it. Um, if you're confused, talk to me. <laughs> um, or talk to someone you know on the writing committee. But uh, please don't take this process for granted. Um, I, I remember after Kansas City uh, meeting with a delegation of Palestinians who... Uh, worked deeply with Mennonites and they were so uh, concerned and confused because they said Mennonites have been uh, such strong supporters of peace and justice in this area um, and we don't understand why they're abandoning us now and that was very very hard to hear so yeah um, recognize that voting for not only will voting for this have uh, implications, but not voting for this or tabling it again would have major implications as well for our work in Israel-Palestine. We referenced the writing team a couple times here, and you talked about Lisa Shirt being part of it. Who else is on the team? Uh, uh, Andre Gingrich Stoner, and, uh, uh, who was working for Mennonite Church USA, and... Uh, Rod Stafford of Portland Mennonite Church were the three people on the writing team. Uh, they also had a 10-person reference team, uh, uh, which has a very wide uh, diversity of opinion uh, on Israel-Palestine, uh, from 
other Mennonites. And then also, as I said, we tested it with Israeli and Palestinian partners, with uh, peace partners in the U.S. who are concerned about Israel-Palestine, with Jewish partners in the U.S. So uh, this, there was also a time for uh, anyone for public comment on it, and we took that all into account. So uh, this process has been uh, a very long and deep process. Uh, the resolution has been vetted and argued about and discussed at length uh, already. So I think we ended up with a very uh, deep and nuanced document. I'm encouraged about the process, you know, because I'll be honest too, with some of my interactions with other denominational folks uh, who work on Israel-Palestine, it seems to be, it's almost like uh, the process goes in reverse. Like if you, you can get a, a resolution sort of through whatever your process is as a denomination, and maybe you can get it through by a slim margin. And then you have to go back and then you have to do all this work that we're doing now. And then you have yeah. all this education work. So again, in a way, it's almost like that, that tabling gave us, gave us time to do this important work that, that was going to have to be done at some point. You know, you, you have to right. be hyper on this, it seems. Yeah, and, and now there's, uh, there's an impetus to have the, these conversations, both uh, the resolution that passed saying we want to do education and knowing we have this resolution to come. Uh, there's kind of no excuse not to be engaged in the conversation about Israel-Palestine right now. I, I really feel good about this, too, because and you mentioned like that reference group, and we talked earlier just about the range of opinions that people yeah. have on Israel-Palestine, but... This issue to me is um, it's emblematic of, I think, of a lot of the struggles that we have, not just as a church, but even as a nation. I think I, I haven't met anyone who's been, who, and I'm sure they exist, but at least in the Mennonite world, people who hold the line and says, you know what, yeah, whatever Israel wants, we have to give them, and, and we don't care the consequences. Everyone that, that I've talked to, they want the same thing in terms of that they want Israelis and Palestinians to, you know, to find that shalom. You know, and, and to, to live these you know, fully integrated, healthy lives. And that's what we want. And then you get into the process. Well, what does that look like? <laughs> that's when you know, people turn against each other and you start to doubt people's motives. Um, yeah. But I, I feel for our church, our motives are, are good and we want to get to the same mm -hmm. place. And mm -hmm. now maybe we, we found a process that, that acknowledges, yeah, good intentions, but, but different strategic um you know, thoughts on how to get there, but uh, I think we've married them in a, in a good way. Yeah. You know, other, um, other denominations or church bodies or even nonprofits sort of come to the place where we're at just in sort of a, a unique way where we've, we've melded these concerns together. Yeah, for sure. And I, I would say, um, what, one of the things that happened th through this process was that there were kind of two conversations that were diverging. There were people who uh, cared very deeply about Israel-Palestine, and uh, th those folks could become cynical about the work being done on anti-Semitism because too often uh, work on anti-Semitism turns into silence about uh, oppressive Israeli policies. And there were people who were working on issues of uh, Mennonite anti-Semitism, and they, could, they were becoming cynical about uh, the conversations around Israel-Palestine because too often people can use that uh, 
and kind of step into some anti-Semitic tropes as they're trying to work for justice for Palestinians. And so what we try to do is take these two conversations that were moving away from each other and pull them all in and say, no, these are two things that need to be complementary, uh, that can work together positively. Um, that working for, for justice for Palestinians is not anti-Semitic. That challenging anti-Semitism is not going to cause us to be silent about justice for Palestinians. Um, that those are two things that need to work together. Uh, and so that's kind of one of the sub-contexts of the resolution as well. Thanks for your work on this, Jonathan. How can people, yeah, how can people keep in touch with you and, and learn about the webinars you give or the speaking tours and whatnot? How can they follow that so they can take advantage if it comes to their area? Yeah, um, there's a lot of stuff on Mennonite Church USA. Uh, people can email me, jonathanb at mennoniteusa.org. Uh, my email is uh, available online as well. Um, and be in touch with people in your area who have been to Israel-Palestine. They're the ones who know uh, most of what, what's locally happening. Fantastic. Look forward to seeing you in Orlando, if not sooner. Yeah, uh, look forward to seeing you there too. Thanks, Jason.